Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. We are in the middle of the postseason. All of the division series are over. We are awaiting the final four teams in the championship series. We have the Red Sox and the Astros on one side, the Dodgers and the Brewers on the other side. And we're going to talk about so many different postseason things. Uh, But Matt, first, I wanted to ask you this. It's pretty safe to say that all four teams that are left in the playoffs are heavily analytical teams. Like, I know this is the StatCast show. We like to toot our own horn a little bit. Um, but those are, like, maybe four of the top, I don't know, six or seven or eight teams I would think of if asked who are the most analytical teams. Uh, yes. Uh, in fact, I'm going to try and pull this up right now in a recent piece in The Athletic that uh, Mark Carrig wrote about the Yankees being really into analytics he did a. He actually had a chart where he basically showed how many full-time analysts with with Eno Saris as yes. co-written. So, he did so let's see. So in the uh, in the American League, he basically said the top was, it was Yankees, Astros, Rays, Angels. So that surprised me. Um, Red Sox were actually you know middle towards lower of the pack, which actually isn't that surprising given. The Dombrowski regime compared to the previous yeah. Charrington and Epstein regime. I don't even know if it's about number of analysts necessarily, but just like the way they approach this. If you'd think that after last year's World Series, the people would stop feeling like, oh, analytics, hargo bargo. Uh, but here we are again. Obviously, these four teams uh, approach this. And then the uh, on the NL side, Dodgers are one. Yes. Braves, two, which is interesting because the listeners of this show might remember our, uh, our uh, interview with uh, Adam Fisher a few weeks ago or maybe months ago at this point. He just recently worked for the Braves and previously the Mets, and he talked about being there as he saw the Braves kind of going through this transition. So the Dodgers, Braves, Brewers, top three. Oh, they all happen to be in the National League Division Series. I want to talk a little bit about what we have seen in the postseason so far. Um, obviously, it's it's a different brand of baseball because you have more days off and you've got a you know the best teams only and presumably the best players. Um, and I thought this was kind of interesting. This is a, actually a tweet from Len Casper, uh, voice of the Chicago Cubs, who was quoting Joe Sheehan. The team that hits more home runs this postseason is 11 and 0. And it's 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 weird that it feels like it's a hot take to say it's good to hit home runs, but I do feel like people still bring out that trope that says well small ball wins in post in october i think we know that's not actually true there's been a three and a half percent increase in runs scored via the home run compared to the regular season and i think part of that is probably just due to the fact that there are better pitchers in october and you know you're probably not going to strain together three or four or five hits uh so you might as well swing as hard as you can in case you can hit something out of the park if you're facing justin verlander do you really think you're going to get a rally against him probably not and it's not it's it's Starting pitchers who can go more frequently because there's more days off. You know, like, I think, you know, last year, I I think you wrote this recently, over the course of the season, you know, a team has, like, 17 days off. Last year in October, the Astros had, like, 15 days off. Right. You know, so it it changes. So starters can go more and relievers can go more. You don't see the bottom three men in the bullpen unless it's already a blowout. I looked this up. Uh, In the regular season this year, starting pitchers faced approximately 60% of all batters in the postseason so far starting pitchers have faced 50 percent of all batters there have been 1215 plate appearances in the postseason so far starting pitchers have faced 611 relievers have faced 604 we have achieved an equal 50 50 split which i don't know even like three years ago would seem impossible uh and now it seems like the new normal especially you have a team like the brewers obviously like that is how they have gotten here yeah the other the other trend that i've that i've noticed that goes along with this is basically the death of the sacrifice bunt. I think the the bunt is basically non-existent as a strategy. I've been watching recently. And I was like, well, it really doesn't seem like anyone bunts anymore. Not surprisingly, and I went and looked it up. And sure enough, in the wild card era, it hasn't been a steady decline since 1995, but it's been a, a slow decline. And in the last couple of years, it's basically just completely dropped off. 
Um, in 2016, there were 14 sack bunts the entire postseason. Last year, there were 15. This year, thus far, there have been eight, including one extremely ill-advised sack bunt by Francisco Lindor. I was not a fan of that. And no outs. He subsequently hit a long home run his next time up. Um, and with these teams, with these identically-minded teams in the LCS, we're not going to see a lot of bunts from here on in. It also just speaks to the idea that teams are aware they're not going to string together a lot of hits and that they know that home runs are what's going to win them games in the postseason. It's also just really been interesting to me to see how different the pitching has been, not just in the sense of starters and relievers, um, but the type of pitches. For example, fastball velocity is up. It was 92.8 in the regular season, 94.3 in the postseason. Uh, obviously makes sense. The best pitchers with more rest, more days off. Fastball percent is down from 55% in the regular season to 52%. Fastballs that are being thrown are being thrown harder, and there are a few of them. No wonder it's so hard to hit, and as you might expect, slugging percentage down from 409 in the regular season to 353 in the postseason. Pitching is so good, especially when you have the best pitchers pitching at the most optimal times. So I think what we want to talk about first uh, is probably the series we saw briefly, right? I mean, now we, we, we saw the Brewers just like dominate the Rockies. We all know the Rockies had hitting problems manifested itself enormously in that series i don't even know there's that much to say about it like we've talked a lot on the show about how underwhelming the rockies offense is and i think they were even we did not expect them to be this bad they scored in one inning across three games i don't want to say i expected them to be that bad but i expected them to not be good that's basically what happened uh and i cannot believe kyle freeland got zero innings in the nlds it wouldn't have made a difference i i will admit that and marquez was great um that was shocking to me so the rockies see you next year uh dodgers and braves i think you know kind of went as expected the braves had their moments they won a game um you know they they really showed a lot for the future but the dodgers are clearly the better team here but the one that was interesting to me the two were actually were in the american league uh last night the yankees and the red Sox. so the yankees are out and i, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about john carlos right i mean he didn't have a phenomenal postseason i guess but i don't know like what are your thoughts on john carlos the thing about it's just like if you if you I don't necessarily think the Yankees would go back and undo the trade right now if they could. But you look at Stanton now, and you look at his track record, and if you look at his career, the outlier is 2017. That's the year that stands out more than any of the others. So, like, that was the year he hit 59 home runs. That was the year he won MVP. And then after that, there's all the hype. The Yankees get him. They didn't give up a ton of talent. It was mostly sort of taking on salary. So, in that regard, you know, they don't have – Huge regrets about the players they gave up, but he's you know one of if not the close to the highest pay player in baseball, um, and he's probably if you look at his numbers, they're the last three his last three years he's basically in aggregate the same as Chris Davis and Nelson Cruz, and no one thinks that those are thirty million dollar a year players, and this is a guy granted he has last two years he has played more than one hundred fifty five games both years. But he's had a long history of not being able to stay on the field. So right now, as we head into this offseason where there are a lot of interesting free agents and everyone thought this was going to be the offseason where the Yankees were going to be really active, he doesn't necessarily prevent them from making moves, but he definitely – he certainly makes the Bryce Harper equation a lot more difficult and maybe takes them out on Bryce Harper. And that might be the point where if they go back and look, maybe they think, huh, maybe I wish I could be making a run at Bryce Harper right now. Or maybe, huh, maybe we should have signed J.D. Martinez last year. I think I – disagree with you 
in some sense. Now, listen, I would not want to be on the hook for 10 more years and $272 million uh, for a guy who's going to turn 29, but also it's the Yankees and they can afford it, so who cares? Uh, he did not hit well in the postseason, right? 238, 273, 381. But, you know, the postseason is such a small sample size that a couple of well-struck batted balls at the wrong spot, which he had, can really hurt you. He had a 284 weighted on base, but a 422 expected weighted on base and if you look at him over uh you know over the last couple years like as you said last year obviously was a a much stronger year than this this year last year's expected weighted on base was 397 this year only 339 but when i go back to 2015 his expected that year was 398 now he was hurt he missed half the season he would have had another 50 home run season it's actually been interesting he's been pretty up and down like very very good in 15 17 pretty good but not great in 16 18 and i still have you know i still have hope not hope, but like confidence that he is a very above average hitter. I don't think he's a top five hitter, but a top 20 hitter. Yeah. And, and as I said, I don't think he's like, you know, like this, this, this dead weight they're going to be carrying around. So I don't, I don't mean to, to present it as that. Um, and I mean, people will focus. And I wasn't even really focusing on the postseason, although his two biggest at bats last night with two men on in the ninth inning, he struck out game one in the seventh with the bases loaded and no one out. He struck out. So he certainly didn't help himself in the eyes of, you know, the fan base with, you know, strikeouts and key spots in that series. I was speaking more of just like the season in general, um, where he was just like a good player, but he wasn't an MVP caliber player. And I think that like, you know, looking back, it's obviously, it's obvious they bought high on him. And the question is, what is his true level? It's probably somewhere in between 17 and 18. But, um, you know, it, it definitely kind of is now, it's now kind of the defining, the defining transaction of the Yankees for the next couple of years. It'll be interesting to see how they fill in their roster around him. I think they're going to be a perennial playoff team. It's just sort of interesting to see what they do from here. I think that's very fair. Uh, let's turn to the Astros. Uh, and as a reminder, StackCast is powered by Amazon Web Services. The Astros, I think we've been talking about on this show for at least six weeks, are the best team in baseball in both of our opinions, even though they did not have as many wins as the Red Sox. Uh, and I'm really interested to see this Houston-Boston ALCS. But I do want to take a second to just kind of note the absolute destruction they just dropped on the uh, Cleveland Indians here. And there's some hilarious notes here. And these are from our friend Jeff Sullivan at Fangraphs. He found that there were 308 total postseason series that have been completed. So 616 team series. If you look at what the Astros did compared to the Indians, uh, they had the highest differential in batting average, 183 points. The highest differential in on-base percentage, 225 points. The highest differential in slugging percentage, 393 points. And so if you look at OPS, Houston had a 1,037 OPS. Cleveland had a 418 OPS. The resulting gap there is 619 points. It is the highest by nearly 200 points. Now, I know we're talking about three games, and there's only so much value you can take from that. But wow, they hit in this series 327, 421, 615. They allowed... 144, 196, 222. We talked about the struggles of Jose Ramirez a couple weeks ago. That really manifested itself. Cleveland did not look like they belonged on the same field uh, as the Houston Astros. Yeah, and it was also interesting. Uh, there were some Mike Clevenger quotes uh, after the fact, which he basically said something to the effect of, like, analytically, our backs were against the wall before the game even started. Um, so it definitely, you know, it seems to me, and this the, the evidence has been pointing pointing in this direction for a while and then you hear players say it like I sort of feel like the Astros have distinguished themselves as they're kind of operating on another plane than every other team in baseball in terms of what they're doing it kind of reminds me of the New England Patriots I feel like they kind of have this black box of how they operate where they suddenly like get more out of players than anyone else does and are 
playing they're I don't want to say they're playing a different game, but their their brain trust is able to put put out a, a team on the field that is not only individually great players, but like the total is better than the sum of the parts. Yeah, and here's a question for you. And I'm totally putting you on the spot here, so I don't expect you to have a good answer. When they acquire players, they tend to get better, right? Justin Verlander, Garrett Cole, uh, Ryan Presley, who we've talked about a lot. Have they gotten anybody who hasn't improved or got worse? Like, I guess Josh Reddick's been like, okay, not great. But other than that, I can't really think of someone off the I top mean, of my the, head. I mean, the big example is J.D. Martinez, right? That's like the guy that... Well, that was, that's like five years yeah, ago at this one, point. Yeah. yeah, but that's like, that's the big one who got away for them. That's the one that sort of makes you feel like, okay, maybe they aren't smarter than us. Well, sure. Uh, I mean, I listen, I agree with you. I, I think... I know no one's going to think that they are the best team in baseball because they didn't win as many games as the Red Sox did. They won 101 games. They won 103 games last year. If you look at their pitching staff, I, you know, we talk about bullpenning all the time, and we've talked about the strength of their bullpen all the time, but their rotation is really incredibly deep. You can look at, for example, we went back to 1947. So when Jackie Robinson integrated baseball, that would be 1,760 team seasons. And I looked at a couple of stats that uh, try to put their performance in context. So the first one is called FIP minus. I know that sounds like a silly name, but basically it says, what's your fielding independent pitching and how much better is it compared to the league average for that year? Because obviously the league talent level changes each year. Of those 700, 1,760 team seasons, the number one team in performing above the league average in fielding independent pitching was last year's Cleveland Indians at 25% above average. Number two is this year's Houston Astros at 24% above average, just ahead of like the 90, the 96 Atlanta Braves, uh, the 71 White Sox, the 97 Braves, the 03 Dodgers, like these really good pitching teams. If you do the exact same thing in terms of ERA, the best team in terms of ERA above league average for that year, last year's Cleveland Indians, 27 point, uh, percentage points above average, then the 93 Braves, and then the 2018 Houston Astros tied with the 2016 Chicago Cubs. That is like, that's historically good performance. And I think it's, you know, it's the bullpen, of course, but it's also Verlander and Cole. Like they, they didn't have these guys last year. I know they had Verlander in the playoffs, but they didn't have him for the entire season. They didn't have Cole at all. Remember, my favorite trivia question of the last two years who pitched the most innings for the 2017 World Series champion Houston Astros? Mike Fires and his 5.22 ERA. I really, I, I think they have improved themselves by so much over last year's team. And I think that that's that's. I think Cole's a great example of kind of the mindset of the front office. And a lot of teams, you know, they win a World Series or they have surprising success, and it's there's there's a tendency to get complacent. And so for them to go out and aggressively trade for Garrett Cole and make him better just sort of speaks to a understanding of like a lack I should say lack of complacency and you don't see a lot of teams make that kind of move so to, to me what impressed me most about the Astros is not is not the, just their ability to get better but the fact they've also been able to build this team on a relatively modest payroll now some of these guys are going to start hitting arbitration and it's going to take a huge you know a, a, a big jump up at the same time they they have a lot of roster flexibility to kind of there there's no danger of kind of like blowing up against the luxury tax. Yeah, we were making this joke around the office the other day. Uh, who, who will be the guy that they acquire this winter and just like miraculously make him better? And I think we both settled on Nathan Ivaldi. It was like the first name that came to mind because you could totally see that happening, um, although they might face him sometime in the next couple of days, which would be kind of fun. Really, uh, we've talked about their bullpen a lot, and we kind of had this game last week where would you take the guys who didn't make the Houston bullpen for the ALDS or the non-Kimbrel Red Sox guys who did. And I actually have the stats now because we know who made the LDS. Uh, the top five guys for the Astros who did not make that roster, Hector Rondon, Joe Smith, Brad Peacock, Chris Devensky, and Francis Valdez. They combined for a 340 ERA, a line of 223, 298, 
a 387 slugging, 28% strikeout rate. The rated on base against of 298 is basically what David Price and Madison Bumgarner did this year. They did not make the roster, any of them. Which is, a, that's insane to me. We'll see if they make any changes against the Red Sox. And of course, you know, we can maybe transition to start talking about that series now. Um, that, that's, that, um, it's actually the second LCS to start. That one starts on Saturday night. Um, you know, against the Yankees, the Red Sox, the, the big question was the Red Sox middle relievers. It was like, will they, will they get the job done? And they got the job done in the sense they didn't give up a lot of runs. And they kept the ball in the park, which against the Yankees is huge. In games uh, three and four, the Yankees did not hit a home run. In either game, it was the first time since April 7th and 8th against the Orioles that the Yankees went back-to-back games at home without hitting a home run. So if you keep the Yankees in the park... Wait a minute. Against the Orioles? Yes. Really? Yes. (laughs) Okay. I learned something. (laughs) Um, So... They did their job in that regard, but the, I mean, they had. I think the the the, the non cumber relievers. I think had. I think I read it had seven walks, and oh, you have it here. I have it here. If you look at the the other four, the main four guys aside from Kimbrel, Brazier, Kelly, Barnes, and Hembry, uh, nine and two thirds innings, no runs in the ALDS. But I think they had seven walks and ten strikeouts. Uh, that's not great. So that's the not point is that like there's, yeah. there's and also I mean Kimbrel looked very shaky. Oh man, nice. yes. He, I mean his walk rate was up all year and. You know, I still take the Houston bullpen over the Boston bullpen by a lot, although I'll say the fact that Barnes and Kelly and these guys pitching well uh, has to give you a little bit of confidence. But I also think it says a lot when you are, you know, bringing in Chris Sale as a setup, man. <laughs> like, that has to say a little bit about the confidence uh, you have in your bullpen. Yeah, and I, th- I don't think that – I mean, this year Kimbrell was uh, – he was in the bottom, like, bottom of the league in walk rate for relievers. He was walked He walked almost 13% of batters. So that's that's – not good. Now, one of my concerns about the Red Sox going into the postseason was that the lineup seemed kind of top-heavy. Uh, Mookie Betts, obviously fantastic. J.D. Martinez, fantastic. Bogarts had a really good year. Uh, you know, People who have been reading me for a long time know how I feel about Steve Pierce. It's like a giant heart emoji. But one guy I hadn't considered was Brock Holt. And I don't know if you've been paying attention to how amazingly good Brock Holt has been for the last two months. So two months ago from today, we're starting with August 10th here, including the playoffs minimum 100 plate appearances. So that's 266 guys. And if we look at the leaders in weighted on base average, number one, unsurprisingly, Christian Yelich, 490. Number two, Brock Holt at 460. And listen to the names he's ahead of. Luke Voigt, who's been playing out of his mind, Tommy Pham, Mike Trout, Justin Turner, Alex Bregman, Max Muncy. What is Brock Holt doing near the top of a list like that? And it's not just fortunate outcomes. Uh, His expected weighted on base is seventh. He's been earning this. He's been crushing the ball. If you look at his numbers before and after August 10th, his ground ball rate has dropped from 54% to 43%. His hard hit rate has jumped from 29% to 37%. Now, something did happen uh, on August 10th, or actually just the day before. In the middle of the game, he borrowed a Mookie Betts axe handle bat, and he has not changed back. I am not going to you know, give all of this credit to the bat because I should point out that Sandy Leone also uses the bat and he's been the worst hitter in baseball this year. So let's not go nuts with this, but that is a pretty fair break point. Brock Holt's been incredible. <laughs> How? Yeah. How? And it, it, it's a good, it's a, it's a good matchup against the, uh, um, the Astros, uh, because they're going to throw a lot of right-handed, right-handed pitchers. You have to start him over Ian Kinsler at second base. Oh, I think at this point, after, I mean, you know, whatever you think about him for the cycle, he had a huge game. Whatever you think of the importance, a cycle is still a lot of added value. He ripped the ball four times. Um, one of them was off Andrew Romine, but... Um, <laughs> well, yeah, okay, there's Austin, that. Austin Romine, but anyway. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Kevin Romine. Um, but, yeah, he's going to start over Kinsler. I think there's no question about it. And I, I mean, I kind of credit, I do credit Alex Cora for sticking to his, his guns, you know, game three, he went to the righty lineup against um, – who started for the Yankees that game? 
I do not remember. Severino. There you go. Um, and Holt hits for the cycle. And then game four, he basically goes back to flips it back. He puts Kinsler back in the lineup. Kinsler ended up getting a big hit, although uh, it went over Gardner's head. 60, 67% catch probability. I was, I was there. I saw that. Um, yeah. But it was ripped. It, it was. One of the hardest hit balls that Kinsler's had. I think it was his hardest of the StatCast era, I think I saw. Uh, that might be right. Um, so it um, credit Cora for doing that. I imagine he'll do the same. Um, when Keuchel pitches, I and mean, I guess his Kinsler will get the starts, but against Verlander and Cole, given the way Holt's been playing, you have to think he's in the lineup. Which David Price postseason narrative do you find more powerful slash annoying? That he can't pitch in October or that he can't pitch against the Yankees? Because if he pitches well against the Astros, well, then one of those still works and one of those doesn't. And if he doesn't pitch well, well then it's just October. It's not team-based. Um, that's a great question. <laughs> the answer is I hate them both. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I sort of always like seeing these kind of postseason narratives, but you know, you know, put to, put to death. So like, when, like for example, I was never, like, you know, I had no love for A. Rod when he was a player, but I was kind of secretly thrilled in 2009 when he had that huge postseason because it kind of just like put that to rest. He basically carried the Yankees over the Twins. It was a huge factor in them winning the World Series that year. So I would not mind seeing David Price put up a couple of. Uh, uh, really big postseason starts. Of course, we've talked about this on the show. The Red Sox, the Astros are very well equipped to face left-handed starters, and the Red Sox are going to be throwing left-handed starters in what? Games one, two, and possibly six, seven? Well, that's true, but I think the Astros are well equipped to face all kinds of starters. But, but as we saw last week, they have the highest amount of right-handed hitters, uh, highest percentage of, of plate appearances from right-handed hitters. All right, prediction time. I'm going Astros in six. Yeah, I mean, I will say uh, Astros and I'll say Astros in five, just to even wow more. I, I I looked this up. The Astros, great, they haven't won the World Series yet, and I'm sure I'm you know jinxing them by saying this. I was curious to see how many times a team had won back-to-back World Series while winning a hundred games in both years. And since divisional play started, it's only happened twice before: uh, the big red big red machine in '75 and '76, and the Yankees in '77 and '78. Of course. The 78 Yankees won exactly 100 games and needed to play 163, a.k.a. the famous Bucky Bucky Dent game, to get to 100 wins. So even they get an asterisk. So if the Astros um, win the World Series, they will join the Big Red Machine as the only two teams in the divisional play era to win back-to-back World Series with 100 wins in both seasons. I think you saying Astros in five is more of a hot take than you saying Astros in three in the divisional round, even though that was a sweet prediction. Which happened. (laughs) All right. The other one is Dodgers-Brewers. We're going to have two Dodger-Brewers games in the books before the ALCS even kicks off, which is always kind of weird to me. So that series could be half over. I'm so fascinated by this series. I'm I'm really happy with our final four teams this year. I know it's three of the same teams from last year. um, But Dodgers-Brewers, I think, is going to be really, really interesting because in a lot of ways they're similar. And then, of course, in the pitching way, uh, they're absolutely not. And what's kind of fun to me is if you're the Brewers – how do you try to pitch against a very good Dodger offense? Obviously, it's a, a much tougher offense than the Rockies, right? The Dodgers led the National League in runs scored, home runs, slugging percentage, and walk rate. They were second in hard hit rate only to, wait for it, Milwaukee. So there's that. It's good to hit the ball hard. It's good to hit home runs. And the Dodgers have a lot of platoon options. At first base, Freeze or Muncie. Uh, in left field, Taylor or Peterson. In right field, Kemp or Puig, and I'm not even counting second base because Kike Hernandez has been so good and Brian Dozier has been so bad that I think Kike is just going to start uh, against everybody. And so I kind of ran some numbers on this. And if you look at the the three guys uh, from those three platoons I mentioned against righties, so you have Muncie, Peterson, and Puig, 
they combine to have a 365 on base and a 573 slugging. They've basically combined to hit like Alex Bregman, who's going to get some, you know, down ballot MVP support. Uh, and, you know, they've been below average against lefties. Not Muncy, really. He's been fine. Uh, but Peterson has been long unplayable against lefties. You literally cannot let him play against the you lefty might be like the, ever. The, the most platoon of like. Like he behaved like the, the most stark platoons in baseball. Uh, it, he's he's up there. Uh, and Puig shockingly is now into like his you know two and a half years into having reverse splits, which is super weird. Uh, and then the verse lefties trio is actually not that big of a difference. Like Kemp, Chris Taylor, and David Freeze are essentially equally as good against lefties and righties, about 20% above average. Uh, but the entire point there is that that 20% above average is better than the 10% below average against lefties that the first three guys are. Anyway, if you are Craig Council, you've got a lot of decisions to make because it's not like, oh, well, I have Clayton Kershaw. I'm obviously going to put him on the mound no matter who's hitting. I feel like they're going to start with uh, Julie Chassin. They have not yet made any announcements so far. And I kind of feel like Chassin's a little bit underrated because his slider is really, really good uh, against righties this year. He's allowed a line of 171, 244, 284. So if you look at that on a weighted on base scale and you look at the 95 starters who faced 300 righty hitters, the best guy in baseball was Jacob deGrom. Number two, Miles Michaelis. Number three, Julius Chassin ahead of, of Scherzer, Sale, Zach Wheeler, and Corey Kluber, and also Aaron Nola. Those are some names. Like, that's legitimate. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting. You, if you are counsel, you can really choose what Dodger lineup you would like to see. Yeah, I, th- I think that. I mean, Chazine seems like the obvious choice for Game One. I'm more interested in what they do after Game One because I think we could see some actual quote unquote openers where we get a. Uh, uh, well, are we are we going to split hairs here between openers and bullpen game because they are different things? No, I'm, right? I'm talking. Think- I, I think that. So the the point you showed before basically is that their lefty trio is not as good against lefties as their righty trio is against righties, right? Yes. So I could see a world where you say, okay, we're going to start Corbin Burns for an inning and then bring in Wade Miley or Gio Gonzalez. So you've got the lefties in, and then you can go attack those lefties, you know, with Miley and Miley. And um, then you get Miley facing Jack Peterson. and or, uh, or you force Roberts to screw up his bench by pinch hitting early. Exactly. Right. So I think that – and, you know – the Brewers can feel the Brewers have, have dabbled in the opener a little bit. They used uh, Dan Jennings, uh, very extreme uh, one one out with with like seventeen active pitchers because it's September. They've dabbled, um, and they they had a bullpen game, a, more of a traditional. I guess Brendan Woodruff was kind of an opener. Well, he went three innings. He went three innings. Um, it was unclear if that was the plan. All well, long. that's the other thing too. Is like, how are you judging intent? But the point is, I think, is, or they, maybe they do it with Woodruff again, and then bring in Miley after him. I think the, the thing about the Brewers is they're freed from having to feel like, well, we've got these big name starting pitchers, we have to line them up one, two, three, four. They don't have that, so they could get could get creative with how they attack this Dodgers lineup that goes platoon heavy. I, I think that's totally right. Uh, but I also think you know we talk a lot about lineup decisions just in the sense of lefty and righty platoons, and I think. That's mostly right. Like, obviously, Jock Peterson, you can just go straight platoon, and that's really all you need to know. But we're just sort of scratching the surface of the decisions that these teams are making because they also kind of make these choices based on, you know, what type of pitch is uh, this particular hitter vulnerable against? You know, is it is it high velocity or is it high spin or is it a low arm slot or anything like that? So I tried to find some of those. Now, Corbin Burns is a right-handed pitcher, so you would think that the left-handed Cody Bellinger would be a wonderful matchup against him. But what's really interesting is Corbin Burns has 95th percentile fastball spin from righties. It's a very high spin fastball. So I looked up Cody Bellinger against all high spin righty four seamers, and he hit 111 with a 111 slugging percentage, which means he had zero extra base hits against them. I think that's interesting. I don't know if that means that's the matchup that they'll go for, uh, but I do think that's sort of the direction that these teams are going in in terms of like how to make these decisions, which is which is fascinating to me. And this is this there there will definitely be a bit of a 
uh, a chess match going on. As we discussed, the Brewers are a very analytical club, uh, and and they have the freedom of not having to feel beholden to their uh, their ace pitcher because they don't really have an ace. And that's sort of what stands out about this team is they won 96 games, and you look at their pitching, and their, their bullpen's obviously stacked and deep, but the starting uh, sort of goes to show you where the game is in 2018 where, like, you could be kind of a dominant team without having any really good starting pitchers. Yeah, I, I think the Dodgers have the starting pitching edge uh, for two reasons. One is just simply talent. You know, you'd rather Kershaw and Ryu and Bueller and Hill uh, above Chassin and Miley and Gio Gonzalez or whoever's going to start. But it's also because they're very heavily left-handed. Three of those four guys are lefties. So now if you are counsel looking at your offense, uh, are you going to start Mike Moustakis and Travis Shaw against lefties? You know, uh, Travis Shaw hit... 32 home runs this year. Only two of them came against lefties. So if you don't, okay, well, you'll put in Jonathan Scope. Jonathan Scope's been terrible this year. He's really been almost unplayable. Uh, I guess Hernan Perez is an option, but you know, usually you like him at shortstop instead of uh, Orlando Arcia. So I do think the lefty-heavy nature of the Dodger rotation uh, puts Milwaukee at somewhat of a lineup disadvantage to some extent. Here. Yeah, for sure. Not to mention the fact that their best hitter, Christian Yelich, is also a left-handed hitter. Right, but in his case, I don't know if it matters because he's hitting literally everybody. True, but still, you know, it's it's they're not as well equipped to. To face, you know, a, a, it puts a lot of pressure on Braun and Jesus Aguilar to really hit to kind of counteract, you know, the, the fact they're going to really suffer a, a platoon disadvantage uh, in other situations. I think, I think we'll see scope. Um, I think maybe Shaw will start game one, and if they struggle against the lefty, we'll see. Uh, scope the, the next time a lefty starts now rumor has it you will be there for game one in milwaukee i will i will be i'm very jealous i've never been to miller park uh, yeah I'm, I'm going as a as a civilian i'll be in the seats I'm, I'm very excited i've never been to the park um so if you if you're gonna be at the game uh shoot me out on twitter i'd uh love to, love to say hello I'm, I'm really really looking forward to uh to checking out miller park i'm sure it's going to be the roof's supposed to be closed right yeah, so yeah. it's supposed to be real loud like i said i've never been so i'm looking forward to your report from this yeah it should be great dodgers in seven um, I'm going to go Dodgers in six. Okay. Uh, we have not had a World Series rematch since 1977-1978. Dodgers-Yankees back-to-back years. Okay. So there's only been like two World Series rematches in history that didn't involve the Yankees or the Dodgers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and one gonna... of them was like Tigers-Cubs in 1907. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. So uh, Dodgers in seven for me, Dodgers in six for you, Astros in six for me, Astros in five for you. So we're both predicting rematches. Yeah, here. I mean, I would, I would prefer to see not a rematch just because I like to see things mixed up. But, um, and I generally, you know, even in the most extreme, extremes situations in a baseball seven game series, you know, even like if this were, you know, Astros Orioles, the Orioles would still win, you know, what, 20%, the Orioles are probably too extreme. <laughs> yeah. No, if it was, uh, Astros, Astros, uh, Marlins, it would still be, you know, the Marlins would still win 30% of the time, probably a seven game series. So when two teams like the Astros and, and Red Sox, it's probably at most 55, 45, but it almost to me, it feels like 70 30 Astros. Well, yeah, we're both picking like the Dodgers, for example. But at least for me, it's very easy to see the Brewers winning this this series because they are really built for this time of year, which is which is hilarious. I would there's a not small part of me that wants to see a team use the opener in game one of the World Series uh, just because like everybody would lose their minds <laughs> about it. And I would love that. And really, what do I do here but root for chaos? Uh, that's our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StackCast podcast. Thanks for listening.